بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا ومولانا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين رب الشرح صدري ويسر لي أمري وأحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله so this is our February session for Ask the Imam. And we have about six or seven questions here tonight, inshallah. And they cover a variety of topics. So we'll begin with question one. Question one says, is there a correct aqidah to follow? Ash'ari? Maturidi or Athari. So, what is Aqidah? Aqidah means our creed, our doctrine, our belief, our theology, what we believe regarding Allah Ta'ala, our prophetology, what we believe regarding the prophets and messengers, and eschatology, what we believe regarding the unseen. That is Aqidah in a nutshell. And in our Ask the Imam session back in October of 2023, we actually explored this question in some detail. So I would kindly refer the questioner to go back to that video from October of 2023, where we went into this into a lot more depth. For now, I will suffice with the words of the great Hanbali Imam, who was a student of the great Hanafi Imam Sheikh Abdul Ghani al-Bulusi rahimahullahu ta'ala, his student being the great Hanbali Imam, Imam Muhammad al-Safarini. Now Imam Muhammad al-Safarini rahimahullah was a great Hanbali scholar and he has a very large work called Lawami' al-Anwar al-Bahiyya. Lawami' al-Anwar is a commentary on a poem that he wrote explaining in great detail the beliefs of Ahlu Sunnati Wal Jama'ah, Orthodox Sunni Islam. And in the beginning of his commentary, he made a very famous statement. He says, and I quote, Ahlu Sunnati Wal Jama'ah, Thalathu Firaq, Al Athariya, وإمامهم أحمد بن حنبل رضي الله عنه والأشعرية وإمامهم أبو الحسن الأشعري رحمه الله والماتريدية وإمامهم أبو المنصور الماتريدي رحمه الله He says that أهل السنة والجماعة Sunni Orthodoxy consist of three groups the Atharia or the Atharis, whose leader, whose Imam is Ahmad ibn Hanbal. May Allah be pleased with him. The Ash'aris, whose Imam is Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari. May Allah have mercy on him. And the Maturidiyya, whose Imam is Abu al-Mansur al-Maturidi. May Allah have mercy upon him. Now these are not three different sects. We should understand very clearly. These are not three different sects. They are three different orientations. 
Masharib, Manahij, Madahib, three orientations or schools within Sunni Islam that all share the same core fundamental beliefs. Each of these schools, the Athari school representing the greater theological tradition of Imam Ahmad, the Ash'ari school representing the methodology and way of Imam Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari and the Maturidiyya representing the methodology and way of Imam Abu al-Mansur al-Maturidi they are three schools within Sunni Islam each has their own particular methodology with its own principles each of them have their own relied upon text for teaching the creed and they have their own masters in the field who expressed the fundamental beliefs and the subsidiary branch aspects of beliefs within the, their given framework. So the way that the Athari approach would address an issue of Aqidah may be expressed differently from that of the school of Imam Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari or the school of Imam Abu al-Mansur al-Maturidi. They may express it differently or prove it differently. However, the same conclusion, they have the same conclusions. Fundamentally, they are united. Does this mean they don't have any differences? That's not the case. They do have differences. There are some differences between them. But some of these differences are not so much in the conclusions they have, but in the manner they reach those conclusions. Some of them reach those, are those conclusions using a combination of textual and rational proof. Others relied most heavily on textual proof without delving into the uh, rational proofs so much. But the conclusions were basically the same, they just reached them in different ways. Sometimes they differ not in the conclusion, but the arguments they put forward to justify the conclusion that is united. Sometimes they have shared conclusions and they arrive at the conclusions in basically the same way. Most of the differences between these three schools of theology are what we call khilaf lafzi, which means it's a semantic difference. A semantic difference means it's just a difference in expression. The core conclusions are the same, but they differ in how they are expressed. An early example of this is in the hotly contested uh, debates of that time, largely based on political fortunes, um, where you have Imam Abu Hanifa, who really, his way of expressing uh, aqidah, was picked up by the Maturidi school. He has his famous statement that Al-Iman is Qawlun Bil-Lisan, right? It's a, a belief in the heart and a statement of the tongue. Whereas the other Imams would say that it's Qawlun Bil-Lisan wa Amrun Bil-Arkan, right? They would say actions are included. So there became this famous debate, is one right, is one wrong? Well, Imam al-Dhahabi, who looks back on that histor historic moment, says, هذا نزاع, نزاع 
it was a semantic dispute. Their conclusion was basically the same. They just expressed it in different ways. So sometimes one would voice disagreement with the other, but when you look at it at the end of the day, you realize they're actually saying the same thing. They're just wording it differently. That's what it is at the end of the day. So most of the differences between them are, in fact, khidaf lafli. They differ in how they express them. So this means that they're not actually differing after tahqiq, after you verify the issues. Um, some of the differences are not lovely. They're not just a question of uh, how it's expressed. Sometimes they are, there are genuine differences. But most of those differences are in furu' al-aqidah, in the branch subsidiary issues of creed that are not harmful to one's iman, that does not take one outside of the general fold of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah because they're expressing their conclusions on subsidiary issues of creed that are not really incumbent on ordinary Muslims to know. So sometimes they're substantial and not semantic, but because they're finer points, that they represent finer elaborations and not differences with core matters of belief, these differences are not harmful. They don't expel one from Ahl-Sunnah. And sometimes, when you look deeper into the works of creed from these three different schools, you do find that there are some differences that are not semantic. They are substantial differences. However, this view going against that view is actually a more isolated view of a handful of scholars within the school. It doesn't represent the view of the entire school. Sometimes you have isolated views of a subset of scholars from within an individual school and they don't represent the entire school. And even within a single school of Aqidah, you have internal differences. Just like for the Madhahib and Fiqh, you have internal differences about certain finer points. And sometimes, if you say there's an error, it's an error in the finer points, and it's an error of ijtihad, but it's not in the fundamentals of faith. So ultimately, a person could learn from any of these three schools, provided they have a good teacher in them, who's not going to make them a partisan of the school and a fanatic. We should avoid the extremes of partisans within any of these schools that seeks to excommunicate or declare the others uh, heretics or ahlul bid'ah and things like that. And that is done by finding a qualified teacher who is balanced, who represents one of those traditions, who can teach the fundamentals within that given framework without creating sectarian students. Now the reality is, in history is a testament, that within these three schools you have had individuals within them who have gone to extremes and become very partisan. And you have examples of this in history. You have serious contentions that rose between people based on some of these subsidiary issues that were blown out of proportion to the point where one group is saying things about the other group. Uh, Ibn al-Jawzi, for instance, he mentions in his Sayyid al-Khatir, he complains in his time, and he was a Hanbali theologian, uh, but he was complaining about some of the Maturidis who had come from Minwara al-Nahr, from Transoxiana, from the region of the Stands, 
who had come into Iraq and were basically uh, pushing on common people, regular, ordinary Muslims, really high-level discussions of theology that were over their heads, causing them confusion. And they took an extreme approach, saying, well, if you don't know this, your iman is suspect. He complained about this. Imam al-Ghazali did the same thing. He mentions this in more than one place, both in his Ihya, in his Faisal al-Tafriqa. He complains about this attitude of some sectarian-minded people who thought that if you can't express the theology the way that we formulated it, in the finer points, then your iman is suspect. And he argued with them, saying that if that's the case, then Jannah will only be inhabited by a very small handful of theologians, right? And then you have issues with some adherents of the Athari school going to extremes with the others. So that is history. It exists. But as the Islamic tradition in matters of theology uh, was refined and uh, expressed in these works, and people matured, they realized, okay, these are not substantial differences that take people outside of the fold of Islam. You just have to be mature about it. So all three are valid, uh, but a person should choose a teacher who is not sectarian, who can teach one of them accurately, uh, properly, and inshallah, all will be good. Because the basics are accessible to anyone and everyone, and there's no core differences in the fundamentals. Okay, next question. Um, question two says, I own a business, a convenience store. Am I allowed to sell lottery tickets to people? Can I also put lottery machines in my store for people to play? What do you guys think? No. Lottery tickets are a form of gambling, mesir. And gambling is haram. Allah Ta'ala explicitly prohibits gambling in the Qur'an. And putting lottery tickets in your store is to facilitate gambling for others. So facilitating the haram is haram itself. And any money that a person earns from setting up lottery in their store or the slot machines, this is suht, haram income. If a person is earning haram income, they're spending that haram income on food that they use to feed their family. They are feeding their family fire. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who is ar-razzaq, the provider, is the one who guaranteed our provision. And he's also the one who set the boundaries for what is halal and haram. So this is a very clear-cut issue. A person cannot have lottery machines or sell lottery tickets in their store. If you are a Muslim and you are selling lottery tickets or you have a lottery machine or slot machine, whatever you call it, in your store, know that what you're doing is haram. It's one of the major sins, a kabira from the kabair. You're feeding your family haram and it's a gross injustice. From another perspective, a person who calls themselves a Muslim and they put these things in their store, they should ask themselves, I am here living in America as a religious minority. Because of that status, I am, whether I like it or not, an ambassador. I am representing 
the way of the Prophet So am I acting as a good ambassador? What kind of message am I conveying to people about this deen when I'm visibly Muslim, recognizably so, as a religious minority, selling these types of things in my store? So this means that not only are you engaged in gambling or facilitating gambling, you're also uh, perpetuating an anti-da'wah atmosphere. This is something that's worth thinking about because people pay attention to these things and they notice, oh, these Muslims, they say this and that, but so-and-so has the store, he's selling alcohol, he's selling pornography, he's selling this and that. Well, he says he's Muslim. What kind of religion is this? They say one thing, but they do the other. So not only are you earning haram through gambling, but you're also sending a bad message about the deen to other people. So that's the answer. May Allah uh, guide this individual. And inshallah, they're asking the question because they haven't yet done it. And they won't do it, inshallah. If they've done it, may Allah guide you to take them out and Allah will reward you for that intention of seeking taqwa of Allah and doing what's right. And inshallah, that's the direction you're going because you, you ask, right? The people who ask, they're in a good position because most likely they're asking because they want to make sure what they're doing is right. The problem is with those who don't ever bother to ask. It's the kind of what I call, you know, you have ready, aim, fire. It's fire, ready, aim. They do the action and then, oh, was that halal? It's not. Whoops. That's not how we operate. Okay. Uh, next question. Number three, can I ask my husband for a divorce if he is mentally, emotionally, and verbally, and physically abusive toward me, that he questions everything I do and treats me like I'm a child and tells me what I can eat? And cannot eat, and what can I, what can I not give the kids to eat, etc. It has been going on for ten years now, and I'm getting mentally sick and unstable. I cry all the time. Uh, the, the 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 wording is a little off here. I pray for him to change and to control his anger, but he blames me for everyone and everything in the house. He keeps threatening me with divorce if I'm not going to change. Allah forgive me, but I need to know what is my rights. So to this question, and I want to make this a general answer for any question like this, I cannot give a definitive yes or no answer to this question, to the questioner specifically. Now, of course, it's reprehensible whatever this person is doing, the way he's treating his wife. And of course, in Islamic law, a wife in that situation does have recourse to either receiving a talaq or a khula' and in some cases, an annulment, a fasq, an annulment of the marriage. She does have recourse to one of those three options. But my message to this sister and to anyone else with similar issues is to please message me privately and ensure that this can be discussed in detail in a back and forth. And as a policy, when it comes to these kinds of questions about marital problems, 
I can't give a specific answer to this question in this format. I can meet with the person and then meet with the other party and then put the two together and hear both sides out and figure out what's going on. And it's not that I don't believe this sister, but in these sensitive issues, you can't give a definitive answer that someone may act on without hearing the other side and knowing all the facts and putting it all together. You understand? Because this is concerning matters of halal and haram, marital relationships, blood ties, kinship, all sorts of ahkam that uh, could be affected by what I say. So again, it's not that I don't believe this sister. Um, I trust that whatever she's saying is true, but I have to hear both sides and I have to meet with the person, the, the people personally and discuss the finer details. So that's a general answer. A theoretical answer is one thing, but applying that practically can't be done in this anonymous format. So that's my answer for this question and any other question like this. So anyone who's listening to this, if you have a question concerning marital issues like this, and I've received a few, you need to email me at the imam at mccgp.org email, not the ask the imam. Because number one, this is anonymous. I have no way of reaching out to this person because their email is hidden. Uh, number two, the only way I can really help is if I meet with the people face to face or, I don't know, FaceTime both of them. But I have to meet with both sides. Wallahu alam. Okay. Uh, next question. Assalamu uh, alaikum. May you and your family be in peace. Ameen. Around 20 years ago, I was reading the footnotes of an English translation of the hadith. I was primitive in my journey in Islam at that point, and I can't pinpoint the source. In any case, I read that when I pray, I should imagine the honored Kaaba in front of me, my grave behind me, hell to the left of me, and heaven to the right of me. Is this an acceptable means of having presence of heart when I pray? Thank you for your time. Have any of you ever heard of that? Yeah, you've heard it? Yeah. So this, what, what this uh, person is describing is, there's a few minor differences between the way they related and the actual narration, but this is found in a narration. This narration is recorded by Imam Abu Nu'aym al-Asfahani, a great hadith scholar, in his work titled Hilyatul Awliya. Hilyatul Awliya is a very lovely collection of narrations that describe the character, the state, and the devotion of the early generations of the Muslims. And he does cite a narration which mentions this. And this narration goes back to one of the early Muslim ascetics known as Hatim al-Asam. Uh, Hatim al-Asam rahimahullah ta'ala died in the year 237 after Hijrah. He was a great imam. Uh, Hatim al-Asam, al-Asam literally means the deaf. But he wasn't deaf. He could hear just fine. But the story tells us that the reason why he was given that nickname, the deaf, is that one time... A lady came to ask him 
about some personal matters, a question in fiqh or something like that. And as she was speaking, she passed gas loudly. And in that moment, in order to save her from embarrassment, he pretended to be deaf that he couldn't hear her. He was, what? What did you say? And from that, she felt, oh, he didn't hear me. So he saved her from embarrassment by pretending to be deaf in that moment. And so he got this name Hatim al-Asam, rahmatullahi alayhi, a great imam. So Abu Nu'aym al-Asfahani mentions this in his Hilyatul Awliya, where Hatim al-Asam speaks about how he approaches the prayer. He says, إِذَا أَرَدْتُ أَنْ أُصَلِّي وَسَمِعْتُ نِدَاءَ رَبِّي قُمْتُ إِلَى وُضُوءِ ثُمَّ أَقْبَلْتُ عَلَى مُصَلَّاي يعني المسجد فأكبر في تحقيق وأقرأ بترتيل وأركع في خضوع وأسجد في خشوع وأتشهد في يقين وأجلس في طبأنينة وأتصور أن الجنة عن يميني وأن النار عن يساري وأن ملك الموت خلف ظهري وأن الصراط تحت قدمي وأن الكعبة أمامي ثم لا أدري بعد ذلك أقبلت صلاتي أم ردت علي Very beautiful statement. He says, when I want to pray and I've heard the call of my Lord, I stand and make wudu, then I go to my place of prayer. I utter the takbir with tahqiq, with realization. He's understanding what it really means. I recite with tartil, melodiously and measured. I bow with submissiveness. I prostrate with humility. I utter the tashahud with certainty and sit with tranquility. Here's the phrase. I envisage, and this is, I imagine, I envisage Jannah to my right, the hellfire to my left, the angel of death standing behind me, and the sirat, the bridge, under my feet, and the Kaaba in front of me. Then after that, after I've prayed in that state, I do not know if my prayer has been accepted or rejected. So the questioner is saying that early in their Islam, as a new Muslim, they came across this in a footnote. And it, what they're describing is more or less accurate. There's a few minor differences, but that's more or less uh, what it says here. And they're asking, is this an acceptable means of having presence of heart when I pray? And the answer is yes, because this has been cited by not just Abu Nu'im al-Asfahani. It was cited after him by many others, by ulama, without any reproach whatsoever. But I would advise the questioner that prior to that, that they learn, if they haven't done so already, learn the fiqh of tahara and salat thoroughly, and learn in detail the meanings of everything that is recited from the fatiha to the taslim, and everything in between. And that is to help them have a better understanding, because understanding is the key to hudur, to presence. And after that, if they find benefit in this kind of tasawwur, this kind of envisagement, then they can do it. But understand that this narration from Hatim al-Assam 
like many others in that time period, it is descriptive. It is descriptive, meaning it is describing his own personal practice. It's not prescriptive, where he's giving it as a prescription to everyone. So as a person is on their journey of deepening their khushur, which is a never-ending journey, this may be helpful to them at some point in their journey. It may not yet be helpful. Or it may be helpful in the future. Or it may be helpful for now, but as things change, they don't do this anymore. The states of the Sadaf were amazing when it came to Salat. And these, these states have been studied and discussed at length by their ulama um, in different works. Ibn Rajab al-Hambali, his work Al-Khushu' fi salat he analyzes these. Salat al-Muqarrabin, uh, other works like this. What you're thinking about in Salat will depend on where you are. But what you should be thinking about primarily is the, mean, the meanings of what you recite and the fact that you are in the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If a person thinks of these things and it helps them be more present, that's fine. But it's not something that they should feel they need to do every single time forever. So that's when you get into the specifics of where the person is in their journey. But in, in theory, yes, it is totally fine to do that. Wallahu a'lam. Next question. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Imam, can a Hanafi keep a beard as per the Shafi'i rulings? Will it be a sin? So, wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. There is more than meets the eye with this question. And there are some what I would describe as methodological issues that will affect the answer to this question. So first, what does it mean when you say you are a Hanafi? And I'm addressing the questioner here. You say you are a Hanafi, what exactly does that mean? Are you a Hanafi in the sense that you have studied or you continue to study the school of Imam Abu Hanifa formally with teachers and you have confidence in the legal foundations and rulings of the school and based on that confidence you commit yourself to carrying out your ibadat according to the way they are described in that school is, is that what you mean when you say you're Hanafi? or do you say you're a Hanafi in the sense that, no, you don't formally study the madhab. You've never studied the Hanafi madhab in a structured way, nor do you aspire to reach a high degree of tafaqquh. However, you live in a region where that is the dominant madhab. And most of the mashayikh and the muftis in your region, well, that's what they studied. And because of that, you as a default go to them for your questions and... It's only in that sense that you're Hanafi, because your muftis are Hanafi. So this is what I mean by methodological issues behind the question. So when you say you're Hanafi, what exactly does that mean? If it is the former, and the person is a committed Hanafi, in that they're studying it, and they have, a conf- they have confidence in the school, 
and they have a personal commitment to live by the ahkam described in the school, then you as a Hanafi can take the standard Hanafi view on the beard. And what is the standard Hanafi view on the beard? It is that you do not cut anything less than a fistful. So anything within a fistful, a qabda, uh, anything less than this is not to be cut. Anything beyond this can be cut, and that's fine. In fact, that's a good thing. That is a standard, the standard Hanafi view. However, there is also a secondary Hanafi view, although it's less popular. But you see it in places like Sham and in Turkey. It is a secondary view in the school, which is very similar to the Shafi view, which is that anything that is considered a lihya is a lihya, even if it's less than a handful. That is a secondary view. And I know some hardcore Hanafis may attack that view or, or deny that it exists, but it does exist. The question is how strong it is. But that is a view, right? If you are a Hanafi only in the sense that your muftis in your region are Hanafi, then the honest answer is you don't really have a method. That's the honest answer. The honest answer is that the lay person, al-ammi, la madhaba lahu. The lay person doesn't really have a madhab. His madhab will be the madhab of his mufti. So if he's in somewhere in India, then the vast majority of qualified muftis are going to be from what school? Hanafi. So only in that sense is, are they Hanafi. Right? If they're in Egypt, however, or if they're in Syria, you have not just Hanafis. You have Hanafis, you have Shafiris, and in Egypt you have Madikis as well. And you even have a few Hanbalis. So if you're in those regions, you're not required to go to one specific mufti of one specific madhab. You can actually go to any qualified mufti, no matter what madhab they are, if you have confidence in their knowledge, if you have trust in them, and they can give you a ruling, and you can take that ruling with confidence. Whether they're Shafi'i, Hanafi, Maliki, Hanbali, doesn't really matter. So if you're Hanafi in that sense, and you go to a Shafi'i scholar who happens to give you that ruling, you could take it. If you decide to take the Shafi'i view about the beard, which is going to be more uh, less restrictive, we should say, than the standard Hanafi view, if you decide to take the Shafi'i view, which is more accommodating, you're not going to be sinful by taking that view because you are still taking the view of qualified scholarship. Now there's a question about following desires and picking and choosing. There's a time for that discussion, but this really isn't one of them because as long as your actions are in the realm of halal, according to any of the four schools, and you're following qualified scholarship, then inshallah, all is good. So if you took the Shafi'i view, it would not be a sin. You're still taking a valid view in Islamic scholarship. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. Next question is uh, somewhat similar to this. Uh, a couple of questions. Number one, what are your suggestions if I would like to be able to do research on fiqh and jurisprudence? I rely on Google. 
but it proves difficult to sift through and otherwise understand fiqh and the basis of fatwa. This is a really good question. Now, I hate to be a bringer of bad news. I wish, I really truly wish that I could suggest to the questioner a comprehensive website with reliable answers in matters of Islamic law. But unfortunately, I'm sad to say this, I have not found one. That is not to say that there aren't many brilliant resources online. There are. But the problem I found is that they tend to be limited in scope. So that you have many websites that are very good in answering fiqh questions in some areas, but they are notoriously unreliable in other areas. Right? I know of one website. I used to recommend people to go to it. I won't say what it is, but because generally the questions were solid. They were backed up. There's references to the works of fiqh answered by people who have studied. It was good. However, what I noticed is that the questions in matters of ibadat were very solid. But when it came to matters of marriage, divorce, and gender relations, they, it, was, it was absolute disaster. So I could not, in good conscience, tell people, yeah, just go to that one site for all of your questions. Sure, a question about salah or tahara is good. But a question about something uh, marriage-related or interpersonal relationship-related, it, it was notoriously weak. So I can't endorse a single site as a go-to site for answers. Another problem with the websites is that even if they have good answers to questions, oftentimes those answers on the website are to specific questions. While the person who was looking up an answer, they think that their question, their question fits that question, but there are specific circumstances in the question on the site and in their own life, and those situations differ. And they may not realize this, right? You could ask a mufti a question of fiqh. Now, depending on how you ask it in your own circumstances and related details, he will give you one answer. If someone with a similar question comes to him, but with a different set of circumstances, he might give a different answer. Not because He's giving uh, one person something correct and one person something false. It's just circumstances sometimes affect the outcome of the answer. So uh, I, was, I was thinking about this earlier in the week. I thought of an analogy. Imagine you have an orange and you're looking for another orange. You're, you're looking in this shop and that shop for another orange. And you grab an orange mango, thinking, well, this is or I have an orange, and this is orange, so here I have two oranges. No, one is orange in color, but it's a mango. The other is orange in color, and it's an orange as a fruit. This is one of the problems. They may have the same color, but they're different fruits, right? Another thing that uh, we've talked about a few times before, have you ever Googled your symptoms when you're sick? Now we have a couple of doctors here. This doesn't apply to them. But if you're not a doctor, you don't have medical training, and you've Googled your symptoms, it's for some reason, it seems like the top result is something life-threatening. 
and you don't have the medical training, so you Google the symptoms, and the, the first entry is something that really scares you to death. You think, oh my God, I'm dying. Then when you actually go to the doctor, you realize it's not that serious, something else. What's going on there? The problem is that a doctor has training, and a doctor also knows the medical language, the istilahat, all the terms. So when a doctor uses Google, they can use it to uh, really refine their research, to narrow down things, and they can find through their Google search what they already know to be reliable because they have the background study, right? But a person without that specific training and specialization doesn't have the discernment, the tamiz, to sort between what is factual and what is not factual, between what is reliable and what is not, what they should take, what they should not. They don't have that discernment yet because they lack the training. So when they don't have the training and they go onto Google, I have this symptom. They type it out. Everything is plausible. If it gives you 10 different possible diseases, how would you know which one it is? You need to be, you need to be educated in medicine and know the terms and know the quality of the references and the sites and their authority to really get a, a solid answer. Well, as a doctor, you can use it to great effect because you have the background knowledge. So a student of fiqh who studied with teachers, who's gone through intermediate text and advanced text, who knows fiqh formally, knows the terms used within the schools, knows the authorities and who they are, knows the recognized works for fatwa from the ones that are not used for fatwa. If they know all of these things, they can actually go on Google, Google up some things, and they can narrow down and get a good answer because they know what they're getting. But if you don't have that training, how do you know what you're getting? So people get confused when they go on Google. So that is, that's the unfortunate answer. Um, the, more, the solution is to learn fiqh. The solution is to learn fiqh with a teacher. Pick a madhab, the one ideally where you have the most teachers and resources. Learn the beginner text, learn the intermediate text, learn the advanced text, learn the names of the authorities in the school, the tabaqat, learn the works on which fatwa is given and the ones on which it's not so that you're not just seeing a quote from a Hanafi book when it's not a book on fatwa, or a Shafi book for that matter, or any other. So that if, and you have to learn Arabic for this, right, if we're honest, if you've gone to a decent level, and then you know how to search, you could find answers to your questions, but you, you already have a filter, right? But without that training, you're not gonna have a filter, and it's very difficult. You don't know if you're getting something accurate or inaccurate, unless you know those things already. And even if you Google them and you know these things, you can't rely on those things without uh, checking, cross-referencing them with the actual books, not just something digitally. Maybe it's a PDF. I hand you that, because there's lots of good PDFs, tahqiqat of different books, but you have to go to that original source. Don't just rely on something digital. So. Yeah, I wish I could say there's one site with everything, but I can't. Okay. Uh, yeah, definitely don't do chat GPT. Yeah. Uh, in, in, you know, there's, a, there's one notorious website 
I won't give the name because then someone may Google it. But it has a lot of answers that are decent and a lot of answers that are absolutely horrendous. And then some answers that are accurate but only applicable to the region where the site comes from. Uh, one example, one website, they're given a question about car insurance. And, and the whole, the whole fatwa is about it being totally haram. Okay, nice. But in that place, there's no penalty for driving without insurance. So they could give that fatwa. But what about a person living in this society where there's penalties and consequences to one's livelihood and other things? Anyhow, that's the first question of this individual. Their second question, which is the final part of our session, they then asked, in a recent class on Allah's names, Al-Madik and Al-Quddus, you referenced the water of the unseen. Can you say more about this? How might we think about this? Of making wudu, so to speak, intending to purify our internal state, as we intend to purify our external body by offering wudu? Well, you know, in hindsight, it was one of those offhand comments, probably something I shouldn't have said, but I was referencing in a very passing manner a stanza, a shatar, from a line of poetry by the great poet uh, Ibn Farid. And in the first line of that poem, he says, which means make wudu with the water of the unseen if you are you possess like inner core and the essence of things, or you have the sir, right? So this is mystical poetry. And in the commentaries, they, the ulama say that what this means is you should purify yourself with the water of the unseen, from which, uh, from, meaning purify yourself inwardly from witnessing your ego, being egocentric. So that you come to witness Allah when you are in Salat and outside of Salat. So basically, as you wash your limbs to prepare for Salat with the physical water, you also want to wash your heart with the metaphorical water, what he calls Ma'ul Ghayb, the water of the unseen, this water of, of deep knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Ma'rifatullah, so that the effects of your egos in your desires and all these things are rinsed away so that you come to the station of ihsan which is that you worship Allah as though you see him so that's what the the line of poetry is actually referring to and there's commentaries on that entire poem I can't even remember the exact context in which I said it but it was an offhand comment um, but going back to the question a person, when making wudu, uh, beyond this poem, uh, when a person is making wudu, they are encouraged to have presence of heart. Imam Abdul Wahhab al-Shu'arani rahimahullah says that your hudur, your presence of heart in the prayer is proportionate to your presence of heart in wudu. Now, we often think of wudu as just that thing to get over with so we can go pray. But he's drawing our attention to the 
devotional aspect of wudu, that it is the means of washing away with physical water the spiritual effects of sins on the limbs. And in his work, Al-Fatih Al-Mubin, he talks about the inner significance of wudu. Inshallah, we'll do a khutbah on that because he goes through each limb, limb by limb. What exactly is being washed away when you make wudu? If you're aware of these things and you're aware of the value of wudu and you have presence when making the wudu like that, he says that that will carry over into your salat and you'll have more presence of heart in the salat. So that would go back to what the questioner is saying that you intend to purify your internal state by being conscious of what you're doing and that you're not just getting yourself wet so you can go pray. You're actually doing a significant act of worship that prepares you physically and spiritually for the special place of salat, which is Hadratullah al-Khasa, standing before the Divine Presence. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad yeah, that's definitely the case for Ibn Farid of all people because he uses this language of ishara. And the second line of the poem would raise more questions than the first because he says, وَصَلِّي الْفَجْرِ فِي أَوْلِ الْعَصْرِ But he's not talking about the actual fajr or the actual asr. These words are, uh, they're symbolizing something else. Like asr, what does asr mean linguistically? What does fajr mean linguistically? He's doing iqtibas from Islamic terms to speak about something else. So if you just read it as he's saying pray fajr at the earliest time of asr, what is he talking about? What is this scandalous? This is why you have to have proper commentary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.